This week on the Veterinary Viewfinder, Suicide in the Veterinary Profession, One Veterinarian's Proposal to Help. This week on the Veterinary Viewfinder. Just a quick note before we get started with this week's podcast. The topic is suicide, and if that's something that you'd rather skip, well, we'll catch you next week. If you know anyone who needs some help or would like to talk more about suicide or depression, I encourage you to call 1-800-273-TALK. That's 1-800-273-8255. Or text HOME, H-O-M-E, to 741-741. That's text HOME to 741-741. Welcome back to the Veterinary Viewfinder, the podcast that tackles the toughest topics in veterinary medicine. And suicide in our profession is something that we have covered here extensively in the nearly three years of doing this weekly podcast. And this week, we're going to have Dr. Andy Rourke discuss his new proposal that's generating quite a lot of discussion on how he thinks we can solve the problem. But before we get into that, as always, I am your host, Dr. Ernie Ward. And I'm registered veterinary technician, Becky Mosser. And we're really excited to have Dr. Rourke on the show today. A lot of our audience is probably very aware of the movement. If you don't, I can't imagine anybody out there not knowing. But if you haven't heard of Dr. Rourke, he's a practicing veterinarian in Greenville, South Carolina. He also is the founder of Unchartered Veterinary Conference. He's an award-winning speaker with NAVC. Uh, he's a practice management educator. He does a little bit of everything. We see him writing. We see him advocating. He has been all over the place and he is a person out there speaking on a lot of important topics as well. So it makes a lot of sense to have him on this show. Dr. Rourke, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited. We are so excited and as excited as we are, you know, we've got to be real. This is this is a tough topic and we have talked a little bit about this on the show before, but you have done something with with your web page and with your your audience and your movement to say um, we can approach things differently. And so you have created this Four Eyes Restricted Drug Access Movement, a call to action of the veterinary industry that that's why we what we want to talk about today. This is something people can tangibly implement within their practice. You know, tell me why this is important to you and, and what got you started on this? What, what got me started on it was just the number of suicides that we see in our profession. And let's say up front, this podcast is going to be about suicide and we're going to discuss it. And if that is a triggering um, event or if, if that's hard for people, please either take it easy or, or, or maybe skip this podcast. So I just want to be upfront about, about the subject matter. I see suicide in our profession and we have we have such a problem with mental illness and it just feels sometimes like every day we're hearing about a new veterinary technician or a new veterinarian who has ended their life and that's it just it's eat it eats at us and it definitely eats at me and you know, we keep saying I, I I think the worst part about it is that we feel helpless a lot of the time it, it almost feels like the scourge is upon our profession and most of us are just looking for something to do and that was really what spoke to me is I believe there are things that we can do and they may not be perfect. They may not be universal, but there are things that we can do to make this situation better. And I think it's time for us to really start getting serious about taking steps. Well, Andy, that, that's a good point uh, here. What are the steps that you're proposing? And maybe just give listeners who aren't familiar what you're proposing in the form of this Four Eyes Save Lives. Perfect. My proposal is it's time to limit access to lethal drugs and pharmaceutical poisons. 
And so the rationale behind that, briefly to lay it out, is when we look at when we look at suicide, you know, veterinarians are wildly overrepresented compared to the general public. And we look and uh, male veterinarians are 2.1 times more likely to take their life and female veterinarians are 3.5 times more likely to take their life than the general population. And so I started to honestly sit back and just think about this and say, how does this happen or why does this happen? And I think about my experience in practice and, and times that I've felt and really burned out. And I, I think a lot of it comes down to we put ourselves in these trying positions and our job is very difficult. And you start looking at the underlying causes like burnout, you look at student debt, you look at low income, especially for support staff, things like that. Those things all take a toll. And I think about the times that I have felt the worst in my life or just felt really depressed. A lot of that times we're in the veterinary clinic, we're at the end of the day, we're hungry, we're tired, we're exhausted. Uh, That's when the world seems really hopeless. And we know from research from the CDC that uh, pharmaceutical poisons are the uh, one of the top two ways that veterinarians do end up taking their lives and those things come together as far as availability and opportunity and and having a drive or a desire to to take that step so i think one of the things that attracted me to to this initiative and and probably you as well in in kind of putting it out there is it is something actionable it's an actionable way to start to try to I don't know maybe take a sense of control over this to say that there is something actionable and tangible that we can do to try to prevent this um, because we are talking about it a lot there's a lot of conversation there's a lot of articles there's a lot of awareness but we don't I I don't think we've seen a, a lot of numbers change so to the point um, that you made, so so tell us a little bit about how this works. What are the steps? Four eyes save lives, um, restricting access. So what is the proposal attached to this? The proposal is simply this. We need to make it so that one person by themselves cannot access drugs that would be used for suicide alone or privately. And that's it. That's That's really the basic simple concept. We know that these uh, medications in our clinics get used for suicide. We know that they are important to the functioning of the practice, and so we tend to keep them accessible so that people can get to them quickly. We know that the one time we do not want people to be able to get to them quickly is when they're having suicide ideation or they're in the suicide process. And the research sets uh, states that in many people, And again, we can't say exact numbers, but in many people, the act of suicide may be an impulsive decision. In one study of suicide survivors, 48% of the people who attempted suicide made that decision within 10 minutes of making the attempt, which means that for at least a certain amount of the population, they make a suicide decision and then they try to execute that plan. And so taking time to limit uh, the, the availability of the means I think that that I think that's really important. I think that the big revelation with four eyes save lives is just we have reached a place with technology or with logistics where it is not that hard to make a system where people can quickly access these drugs when there's two of them. And it is impossible to access these drugs when someone is alone. And I think in the press, that's been very hard. I think a lot of times when we look back historically at vet medicine and how it's run, we thought a lot about the times that we were on call. We thought about being in the clinic in the middle of the night. We, talk, we thought about uh, going out to the farm. 
And for most of us, that's just not practice anymore. I think that we have evolved as a profession to the point where we're not in those situations where you have a single person administering care for a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of practices. Sure, there are some where you're going to have a solo practitioner going out or doing hospice care or uh, things like that or being on call. But again, I think most practices are moving to uh, set business hours. The team shows up. We're all there and we all leave together. There's just not much of a reason that I can see anymore where someone has to be able to get to those drugs alone. We also see this system in human health care. In human hospitals, because of the opioid ep- epidemic, you can't access uh, class two control drugs by yourself. There's a two-person system, and not only is there a two-person system to get these drugs, there is a sign-off system of one person watches the other person administer the drugs. And so human health care is already there. I think it's just a matter of us reading the writing on the wall and going where we need to go to keep people safe. So what is what does this look like in application? Is it key, having two people on site with the keys? Is it keeping controlled drugs in a different place? How can clinics implement this type of practice? Um, how is this proposal asking them to do it? Sure. One of the things I like the most about this proposal is it's highly flexible because there's so many different types of practices and it's highly affordable. You can set this up to be as swanky as you want or as minimalistic as you want. So I have uh, one practice that I work with and they have the managers and the technicians have one key to one lock and the doctors have a key to the other lock. So it's a two lock system and they're just religious about access to those keys. You don't share your key. You don't leave your key in the clinic. And it requires one doctor and one manager or technician to open that box and get those drugs. And during the workday, when they're fully staffed, this is not that big an issue. So it can be essentially the box that you have now. The DEA has already required two lock systems. Most clinics, let's be honest here, most clinics have two locks on their lockbox and they leave one lock unlocked and the other lock everyone has the key to. Or a couple of people have the key to, and some doctors have the keys, and they have it secret keys. and the, Or they have their own key, and they put it in a quote-unquote secret place. And I had a doctor uh, talk to me recently, and he was said, yeah, we've got a key. Everybody knows where it is. It hangs under my white coat on a hook, and everyone knows it's there. And I don't think that that guy is unusual. I think that that is the common nature. And so I think most practices are already set up to run a system like that. If you want to get a little bit more uh, high tech, you can move to RFID readers, which are like the key fobs. And there's companies that make key locks that require two different fobs to open. The benefit to this is it also tracks who is opening the lockbox and when, which is definitely a big step forward for drug control and drug diversion problems. So you can do RFIDs. And again, you just swipe them and the thing will open. It takes very, very little time. And then sort of the Cadillac, which honestly more and more clinics, vet clinics are moving to, are things like the the Cubex systems. And there's some competitors to, to them that actually use biometric screening. So they actually take two thumbprints and they'll open up and you can control which drugs require thumbprints and which ones don't and all of those sorts of things, but we see practices moving in that direction, and that's really the way that the human hospitals have gone. So you can get as nice and high up uh, and and swanky as you want. You can also make this real low tech with a key system, but you've just got to get people on board with following, following the protocols and understanding why they're doing this or why they're being asked not to share their key. In my experience, people in veterinary medicine understand the suicide problem. We're asking them to look out for their friends. We're asking them to help keep their colleagues safe. Say you do not know what's going on in the mind of your coworkers or your friends. Keep them safe. And people tend to get that 
and they will do what they're asked to do when they understand why. Well, Andy, in, in fairness, uh, there has been some um, pushback. Uh, some people have been critical of this uh, initiative and proposal, and and I think it's really breaking, in my opinion, from what I'm reading, in two different distinct pathways. And I'd like to, to take the first one. The first one is that by actually focusing on the mechanics or the means, as this proposal you know s- seems to, to focus on, that you're actually not addressing the underlying causes. And so sometimes just restricting the means, you, you, know, you sort of fool people or lead them into a false sense of security. What, what do you say to those critics? Sure. I completely agree that this is a focus on means and it's not a focus on causes. The analogy that I use is, you know, seatbelts don't address the underlying causes of auto accidents. You still wear your seatbelt and you put your family in seatbelts and you hope to God that you never need them. And this is the exact same thing. I don't think that implementing a drug restriction program or a four eyes program like we're talking about detracts in any way from any other means that you're uh, trying to put into place. This in no way holds you back from doing whatever else you want to do to try to address mental health, uh, suicide, whatever. It's not a question of or. It's not like I do this and so I'm not going to do other things. It's a question of and. If you have a seatbelt you can put on, then put it on and then do everything that you can to make sure that you never need it. And I think that that's really the analogy that holds here as well. I, I don't really understand the idea of this would be the one thing that you would do so that you're not doing anything else. I, and I definitely, I just see it as a safety catch. It's something that we can do right now. It's affordable. It's easy to get in place. Okay. I guess the other thing that I'm seeing a lot, and it's, this seems to be more from like people that do therapy and, and, you know, mental health experts, they, they do caution that by, you know, kind of bringing to the forefront, the means that you could actually trigger people. So there are people that are considering suicide, they're, they're depressed, they're burnout or whatever. And suddenly now you sort of remind them that, oh, wow, all around you, there's the way to do this. And it even might be painless. And so, you know, they, they really caution about moving the means to the forefront of the discussion, again, focusing on the causes. So what do you say to those critics? Sure. Well, everything that we have published, I've definitely run past mental health providers to get them to look at, you know, when anything that we put out, I think the idea is first do no harm. I think that that's one of the most difficult things about talking about suicide is we do worry about um, about creating ideation. And so we always worry about that. But that's where we're in, in sort of a catch-22 is if we are having this problem and we know that we're having this problem, if we say nothing about it as far as solutions, things that people can do to try to keep their staff safe, are we doing any, are we doing any good? If we talk about it, are we going to introduce the idea to other people? I, I think it's a I think it's a balance. For me, we've reached a critical mass where we are seeing massive overrepresentation of suicide in veterinary medicine compared to the general population. And at some point, you say we have got to be able to have a conversation about solutions. I can tell you when we we run uh, drandyrook.com is the website that I have, and I have a team that that runs it with me. We get a lot of contributions about suicide, and we turn the vast majority of them away. I think that talking about suicide does run the risk of ideation. I think if we're going to have these conversations, they need to be solution-oriented. They need to bring value about what we can do to try to make the problem better. And so there is definitely nuance there in deciding what we're going to put out and what we're not going to put out. 
Yeah, it's, it's a really, it's a great topic. Again, you know, I think I was first directly involved with this after the uh, passing of Dr. Sophia Yen, a dear friend of mine. And at the time, I was editor at uh, Pet Health Network, and we really struggled with how do we cover this story. I mean, most of us, you know, Marty and I and others, Dr. Marty Becker and others, you know, we were we were kind of challenged, like, how do we talk about this, solution-oriented and, and we kind of took this approach where each one of us would celebrate a facet of her life and then bring up the challenge that that facet or passion brought about. So I actually uh, went into great detail about how she could never say no and, and she overextended herself and things like that, which is not a healthy state. So, you know, each one of us tackled a different facet or what we perceived to be a facet of, of Sophia's uh, wonderful life and then maybe a lesson that could be learned. So I think, you know, Andy, it's, it's a real balancing act between when do you go that little bit too far? I will tell you there's an excellent website and one that we've referred to, uh, you know, certainly not only here on the podcast, but else, elsewhere. It's uh, called reportingonsuicide.org, reportingonsuicide.org. But it's all these mental health experts that tell you how to write about suicide. And, and one of the first things they say is, you know, don't use sensationalistic headlines. And, and they also say, don't put the means in the in the headline. So that's something I think we can all learn from, you know. And they use the classic, uh, all when Kurt Cobain died, which of course we all know, we were all touched by his death, sadly. Uh, the headlines, uh, for example, Kurt Cobain used a shotgun to to commit suicide or to kill himself. And I remember back when that was breaking, all these mental health experts were saying, no, 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 just say Kurt Cobain is dead. Kurt Cobain died and he's age 27 or whatever it was. Uh, same thing with Robin Williams. You know, those are the kind of triggers, Andy, that we have to be careful. So how are you navigating that? Well, we went to the the reporting on suicide website for sure to start off with that. And as I said, uh, I've been in touch with uh, a number of mental health care providers in and outside of our industry and just running these things by them. The original proposal, the publication that we put out, it actually went through a number of versions and a lot of the language was was turned down um, and cleaned up. And we, we put a lot of thought into how we put this forward. As you said, it is a very difficult balance of not perpetuating ideation with not giving instruction at the same time, especially when you have a proposal like this one that focuses on a specific means, it's impossible to talk about solutions without discussing that means. I mean, you know, there would uh, the amount of hand waving it would take to bring across the idea that we're proposing without just saying we're talking about pharmaceutical poisons. I, I think that I think that that makes it unproductive. Even the CDC back in that old report, remember they refused to, and I don't, I still don't understand to this day exactly why, but they still haven't told us how many of these veterinary deaths are directly related to drugs they obtained in the clinic. You know, they didn't tell us what pentobarbital number of cases, right? I mean, I, if so, I've, I've not seen it. That's exactly right. No, they don't. They, as much as they would say in the CDC report was it's a substantial amount. I, I think that something was like that, that, right? Something like that, yeah. So I look at it like this. Oh, part of it is anecdotal and what you see and what you hear from your own life and community. And this is you know something that has sort of touched me personally. Um, and it's, it's again the anecdotal part I think is strong. The other part of it is this, and and this is you're exactly right. I, this is not backed up. It's not anything that's published. I look at the numbers. The numbers that I think are most interesting to me are this. So male veterinarians are 2.1 times more likely to end their life by suicide than the general population. And female veterinarians are 3.5 times more likely to end their life than the general population. Now, that's interesting gender shift, because when we look at the general population, 
men are much more likely to die by suicide than women. And so why do we have that radical gender shift in veterinary medicine? One of the things that has been brought up again and again is that in the general population, females are more likely to attempt suicide and survive. And the rationale for that is that women are less likely to use violent means. And so their survivorship right. is higher. Firearms. Yeah. Firearms are the predominant means of male suicides in this country. And of course, right. pharmaceuticals in other ways. Are, so are, and in the general population, pharmaceutical is a very, is a, a fair, a, it's a relatively no, lo, low number compared to firearms. Right. Now, so why do we have such a difference in veterinary medicine? My theory would be that veterinarians have access to a nonviolent means that is highly lethal and chances of survival are much lower than what general public would have access to. And so that would point to the relative importance of the pharmaceutical poisons that we as veterinarians have access to that other people do not. And so that's as much of a, a statistical, you know, justification as I can give for emphasis on this. So number one, anecdotal. Number two, looking at the difference in the general population and the veterinary population and theorizing about about where those data differences come from. Yeah. And interestingly, you know, if you look at comparative uh, data, <laughs> I'm like you, Andy, I'm kind of trying to dance around this, this these words, right. but from the human medical, I mean, we, we see staggering amounts too. I mean, the, the average physician is more than twice likely to die of suicide, you know, than, than the general population. So, I mean, we're seeing this throughout. And of course they are, they have lots of strict controls on these, you know, types of, of access. So, I mean, you know, it's, this is a really tough, tough topic, not only to talk about, but, you know, to, right. to actually try to solve or even lessen because, you know, what's happening on the human medical side, despite really good checks and bounds, we're still seeing an escalation in the number of suicides over there. So, you know, this is a bigger, bigger problem, which, you know, again, gets back to the importance to really look at the root causes. And quite frankly, I don't think there's a bit of difference between the pressures, burnout, depression rates on the human medical side, on the veterinary side. You know, I mean, we can argue who's got it worse, but, you know, it's pretty tough for both of us. I agree with that. It's interesting to hear you say that, too, because I've had that thought as well. Is Do you think when you start looking at the burnout side, do you think veterinarians are uniquely pressurized? I, I don't know, Ernie. I, I go back yeah. and forth. What, what are your thoughts there? Yeah, I, th I think my thoughts are, you know, if you are in a service profession, if you especially have the responsibility of a life in front of you or on your shoulders, I think that that is really where the burden begins. Now, we take our job very, very seriously. Uh, and by the by proxy relationship, I think, further complicates it. And I would argue now, go talk to a pediatric cardiologist because I think they're going to have a lot of the same pressures and feelings that we do. But but I hope you understand the by proxy that I think compounds it a little bit. But I honestly believe, and Becky, I want to hear from a nursing perspective, you know, I think that the pressures of being a health provider are tremendous, no matter what species you're practicing on. I absolutely agree with that from what I know. I, I mean, from my, I can only speak to my own experiences, of course. I also, you know, have to say that we don't have a whole lot of statistics in the nursing industry um, on the human side. We don't have a lot of statistics on veterinary technicians on the veterinary side. We look strictly at the physician numbers. And so I would have to wonder across the field in general, whether it's healthcare or just human lives as a whole, how often are we correlating job pressures, whatever you do? 
in relation to your resiliency or your lack thereof. And so I just don't know that if it's a correlation that is made outside of some of these more predominant um, and, and, and maybe affluent type positions as opposed to those in the service side of things that our numbers aren't actually even examined. Um, so I guess that for us, yeah. it's sort of where where we come from is we do hear a lot about um, these concerns and these issues on the veterinary side. And, and Dr. Dr. Work started this out by including veterinary technicians. Uh, that's kind of new to this whole conversation. They haven't been talking about veterinary technicians all along. And to both of your points, the, the, the end of the day, number one, none of this is easy. Number two, this has to be comprehensive. It isn't just a matter of why, what, who, and how. It's a matter of all of it. And so I think it's a wonderful thing to be able to take a little bit of control and to implement immediately a tangible thing in your practice that helps you feel like you have a little bit of control without calling out exactly why you're doing it or not. And I think it's important to have other ways of helping to support your staff in general and to help facilitate happy, healthy work environments as a whole. I think to Dr. Andy's point, you know, you don't ever think it's going to happen to you. You don't know what's right. going on in your coworkers' minds. And so I don't know that the focus really needs to be is who is this happening to the most and why is it happening? and Is it the most important and is it not? I think, honestly, the numbers are very skewed and I don't think that we have enough data to even worry about that. I think if you are worried about potential suicide, depression or anyone around you hurting, then you need to reach out and do something. And that's what we need to remember. I completely agree. I, I've always thought of this as being a multimodal solution. Yeah. You know, yeah. it, it, that's really what we're looking for. We look at complex medical cases. There's no perfect solution that is going to solve our complex medical cases. We are used to looking at solutions coming from multiple places and layering them together. I think that that's what we're talking about here is coming up again, multimodal approach to a problem. And so I think that, um, that means restriction can be part of that. I think that we have got to continue to focus on what else we can do and how do we get at those underlying causes in the meantime. Well, Andy, as we sort of wrap up this conversation, we could go on and on. I really appreciate uh, you sharing all this with us. I mean, but you also have a unique perspective. Your father was a human physician or is a human physician. I mean, what does he say about all of this? I mean, that, that gives you a little bit of insight into to this bigger overarching issue. I mean, what does he have to, to say about this you know, veterinary and physician suicide issue. You know, he, so he's retired. I watched as a young person growing up, you know, he, he would work at a hospital, but he also had a little surgery center. And honestly, he really, I always thought had the heart of a veterinarian and, and really wanted to, to help people and kind of do what was right. And I think that as human medicine went through consolidation and and um and the changes that we've seen in sort of physician groups coming together i think he felt a lot of pressure and i think he felt a lot of a loss of control and i think that he also came to probably enjoy his profession less and less as as he went along and so i saw that stress and i saw the stress in him of a small business owner and i i think that watching him he, he sort of lost the romance for for his profession and i worry about us as I look at veterinary medicine sometimes, are we going to go that way where we don't have the autonomy that we used to have and, and we're going to have more stress and we're going to have higher anxiety? And you look at the, at the um, satisfaction surveys of modern doctors and, and do they enjoy their profession? And those numbers 
are creeping up again right. and again. And so right. I think that he was ready to retire. And I, I think that I, I saw that. I'm looking at the medical profession and saying, I see the stresses and I see the changes that are there. And then I can't help but think that that may be, um, I, I'm such an optimist. I hate to even say this. I, I can't help but think that maybe that is an indication of where our profession is going and, and how people are going to end up feeling. And so I, I look at it as a little bit of, of a, a cautious tale and, and I think that's why people like people like you, Ernie, and, and, and Becky, and, and the rest of us that are out really trying to support our profession and, and, and to find better ways to do things, I think that's why we have to keep working and trying so hard is I'm not sure that the, the default for our profession is where we want to go. I think we really do, as a profession, every one of us step up to try to make it what we want to be. And I, I think that that's probably w- where he would come away from this. Yeah, I really appreciate you sharing in that. And obviously, you know, I, I applaud you. I mean, yeah, I've known you since you were in, in school. Uh, and it is always just so, you know, I guess I'm so proud of you on so many different levels. I mean, you know that and we'll take well, it offline and, and hug each other. But, but you know, I'm so proud of you. I'm proud of you for speaking up on this topic. This is a tough one. It's a delicate dance, you know. And I'm like you, Andy, I, I kind of, you know, I, I go back and forth I, when I see some of the, the criticisms around this particular initiative. I get it. I mean, you know, I get it. And I, you, everybody wants everything to be the best. But, you know, again, what people don't understand is that every, if you ever really want to make change in this world, there's plenty of people that are going to tell you why you're wrong. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, I've kind of been living that my entire life. And Andy, <laughs> I know you probably can relate on yeah. a lot of levels and Becky can too. So, you know, it doesn't surprise Never me. Wrong. But, yeah, but, but the reality is, you know, I, I, want, I want our listeners to go out, take a look at this. Again, Andy, give them the website. Oh, yeah. So it's drandyrook.com, D-R-A-N-D-Y-R-O-A-R-K.com. And you'll see a big button right on the upper right side that will take you to the article. Yep. And if you want to know more, I mean, about suicide in general, National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, I mean, 1-800-273-8255. That's 800-273-8255. If you want to talk to somebody about this, hey, man, they're open. <laughs> Let me be happy to talk to you. They can work you through anything. And, and the other part of this, Becky, you know, we've talked about this so many times is that no matter what you're going through right now, it is going to get better. You will get through this. I don't care how bad and how terminal it seems today, you are going to get through it. So, you know, again, with programs like this we're just trying to make sure that everybody is happy and healthy and you know becky it just again these are the types of things where yeah i know there's some bad parts to our profession and things i'm not so happy about but you know what here's a guy who's trying to do something to make it better that's absolutely right and you know they say so far you are a hundred percent at getting through your bad days why mess up that kind of streak (laughs) with anything kind of rash and you know it's easy i'm not here to laugh about it but at the same time we have to be more comfortable around this conversation. We have got to help support each other. We've got to reach out. We don't have to wait for somebody to ask for help. And, you know, again, Dr. Andy, thank you for for finding that way to not ask for somebody to wait and to find something that practices can implement and put into practice. We want to hear from you guys. Did you go ahead and implement Four Eyes Save Lives? How did you do it? What changes have you seen? And, And how did you implement this in your practice in a supportive way? We want to know. Yeah. And if you want to continue the conversation offline, we are on Facebook at Veterinary Viewfinder. Of course, we're on Instagram like everybody else at Veterinary Viewfinder. And there's even this thing called Twitter that still exists. And I'm actually doing a lot of that at Vet Viewfinder. Becky, I got it right. Twitter still makes us shorten it. So it's at Vet Viewfinder. But regardless, you can find us anywhere, everywhere, whether it's in real life or virtually. And again, I want to thank our just wonderful friend and guest, Dr. Andy Rourke, for sharing his four eyes save lives. Go to DrAndyRourke.com and find out more. Until next time, bye. Bye. Bye.
sorry about that. I, no, 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 no. That's no. That's that was you. Great. You have no idea. I tried to put. I tried to put a good long. That's yeah. all we can ask. We, we, I say we, and by we I mean Dr. Ernie does tons of things. You did great.